Hello, friends. My name is Tom, and I'm one of the pastors here at Spark. And it's Thanksgiving time, and I want to wish you and your family and your friends a great and wonderful holiday season. Uh, have fun, but please, please be safe. Today we continue in Luke's incredible narrative of Jesus' life and ministry to what seems to be miracle after miracle, all pointing to Jesus as a sign that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. In fact, the Gospel of Luke has about 20 miracle stories, and we've already covered six of these stories. Pastor Danielle, she talked about the healings at Capernaum, where Jesus healed a man possessed by a demon and then healed Peter's mother-in-law who was sick. Instead, he preached about Jesus catching a boatload of fish and a few disciples along the way. Pastor Omer told the story of how Jesus healed a paralyzed man that was lowered to him through the roof of a house on a mat. Pastor Mark, he preached about the faith of a Roman centurion and the healing of his servant. And last week, Pastor Kevin preached that Jesus has power, not just over exorcisms and physical healings, but also over nature, including a storm. And today, we continue with another miracle story of how Jesus saves a man possessed by what Luke calls an unclean spirit, a spirit called legion. And it's a story with allegory and drama and powerful symbolic action, and it's revolutionary with political meaning which leads to Jesus bringing good news and hope. This is a story of liberation and freedom for those that are oppressed and bound. So let's read the text. We're going to go to Luke chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 26 to 39. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me, for Jesus has commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the wilds. Jesus then asked, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swine herd saw what happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the garrisons asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. This story is a favorite for many, and it's in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a story that follows on the hills of Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee. 
Luke, sometimes called the Sea of Galilee Lake. But as we heard last week from Pastor Kevin, there was a storm and Jesus calmed him. Today's story is about a man with an unclean spirit, which traditionally is thought to be a demon, and it could be. That's a view that I've been taught in some of the churches I grew up in and what probably some of you may believe, and that is fine and a legitimate view. A view that has been around for a long time and shared by Catholics, Protestants, and our Jewish friends. And if you haven't ever seen an exorcism of a demon before, here is what the exorcism of a woman and a man looked like, at least according to the famous Peter Ruban, who painted this art piece in 1618, which he called the Miracles of St. Ignatius. Here in this painting, you can see Ignatius standing with his big gold robe. He's facing the congregation with his back to the altar. Ignatius' right hand is raised in a priestly gesture of exorcism, which directs the viewers across the axis of the painting toward the banished and fleeing demons that are shown in the nave of the church. You can see these demons in the upper left part of the painting. Do you see it? Very creepy, right? And the fleeing demons seem to be mocked by angels. One demon, which you, one demon, which you should see, is a dragon, and it's sending out fiery smoke. And another demon is a horned beast with glowing eyes looking back. At the foot of the altar, you can see an anguished crowd of people in disarray as they look up toward Ignatius the priest. And these people, they surround a pale and candidly a frightening-looking woman and a collapsed man whose demons have been cast out. And this is about everything I learned in my 17th century Baroque period art class at UCLA. But I have to admit and acknowledge that it is difficult for many people in the modern world to know what to make of this, this idea of unclean spirits, demon possessions, and exorcisms. For some of us, we tend to think of that 1973 supernatural horror movie called The Exorcist, which still scares me to this day. But here's the thing. I do believe there is such a thing as a dark and evil force, a malevolent force that can take over people. And maybe it's a person possessed by a demon, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a person with a mental illness caused by a chemical imbalance. Some people believe this, and that is a fine and legitimate view. Or maybe it's a person that has suffered over a period of time, which has caused excessive pain and agony due to stress, and it's just too much. It could be, going, could be ongoing health issues, or the fear and anxiety that sometimes comes with the loss of a job. It could be the deep sorrow from the death of a loved one or massive debt that seems impossible to ever repay. It could be the breaking of an important relationship. Or maybe it's from being used and abused, and manipulate, manipulated or marginalized by people or institutions or governments or empires that have power when it feels like you have none. Where you feel there is no way out and you have no control and you are desperate. And this dark force seems to hover over you and can make what used to be clear and straightforward become a reality that is hazy, shadowy, and blurred. You see, when conditions make you depressed, bleak, and heavy-hearted, life becomes more complex and people freeze or do things they would not normally do because this dark force, it can possess you. And here's the good news in Luke. We read and learn of a God who can heal who can calm the sea, who can catch a boatload of fish, 
and can lift this dark and evil force and bring us up for air when we are drowning so that we feel healed and restored. And so here in Luke's story, we have a man who is possessed by an unclean spirit and how Jesus restored him. It is a miracle. But I think Luke was doing more in this story. I think he was telling a story within a story. He was filling his writing with allegory and revolutionary meaning because this story is politically evocative and symbolic in its critique of Rome's brutal occupation. And yet this story offers hope. And that's what I want to focus on in this sermon today, this political message that Luke was conveying to his readers. And this is a newer way for me to consider Scripture. It is, because I come from a more traditional Protestant background. But this bigger picture of this political and revolutionary message, I believe it is a fine and valid perspective. It is for me, and maybe for you too. You can make your decision. But this approach has really spoken to me as I consider what has happened in our world over the last four years, where so many people have not been treated with dignity, not seen as being made in the image of God, and treated horribly by those with power, because they could. And so I find Luke's story today uplifting and full of hope, knowing that God's kingdom is to bring healing and to restore justice to the world. One quick comment. I want to thank the theologian and author Ched Myers for his thoughts in his book, which is titled Binding the Strong Man, which helped me with this sermon. The truth is, on one level, the entirety of Jesus' ministry is an act of political resistance where Jesus is letting the world know that he is the true king of Israel and the world, not Caesar and not Herod. And it's through stories like this one and stories in the Old Testament that we learn the political relevance of the gospel message. We had a wonderful speaker a few weeks back, a guy named Esau McCauley, and he wrote in his book, Reading While Black, he says, These are stories of a God who fights for us and against the enemies of his people. These are stories of a God who turns his compassionate eye towards those whom society forgets. Rome knew this, and so did Herod. And so the setup for the story reminds us that it takes place across the lake, not in Capernaum, not in Galilee, but opposite Galilee. In other words, Jesus and the disciples have gone to the other side of the lake. They're no longer in Jewish land, Jewish territory, but are now in Gentile territory, a region deeply rooted in the culture of Greece and not Judaism. They were in the country of the Gerasenes in an area called the Decapolis, which means ten towns or ten cities. And these cities were established in the wake of the Hellenistic conquest of the region. And they represented a Roman cultural and political outpost on the eastern imperial frontier, populated by many military veterans who had settled on conquered lands given as a payment for their service. And so it is no accident then that this gospel story is laced with military images. And conflict, it commences quickly in the story as soon as Jesus steps on shore from the boat because he and his followers are confronted by a man from the city who had demons, who for a long time had worn no clothes and lived not in a house, but among the tombs. And Luke's description establishes this man's character, I believe, as a refugee from one of the Decapolis cities who's been alienated. And for Jewish readers, he was also profoundly unclean. 
And this picture of the man, it echoes Isaiah's depiction of an idolatrous people, where he says in Isaiah 65, 4, they live in tombs and spend nights in dark corners, eating the meat of pigs and using unclean food. So yes, the man is unclean. But this description might also suggest what the nature of life could look like for a person who has lived under imperial occupation and depression over an extended period of time. In fact, Paul Hollenbach has done some interesting work on this story, on the Gerasene demonic, drawing upon the studies of experts in social psychology of mental illness and situations of political repression. And he writes, The tension between his hatred for his oppressors and the necessity to repress this hatred in order to avoid dire recrimination drove him mad. He retreated to an inner world where he could symbolically resist Roman domination. You see, for the century or so before Jesus' time, this whole area had been overrun by the Romans. The Roman military had marched in and taken over, and as they did, everywhere from Britain to Egypt. And whoever got in their way, well, you know what happened. They got crushed. Here is a plaque found in northern England, which, like Palestine, represented the very peripheries of the Roman Empire. And this plaque tells a tale of military intimidation. On the left of the plaque, you can see Mars, the Roman war god, who brandishes a spear, while the mythological hero Hercules, he holds a club. And at the bottom of the plaque is a running boar, a symbol of the 20th legion. And this plaque truly shows the propaganda world domination with the message, do not cross us or we will beat you down. Now, yes, a few people, local politicians and tax collectors, they did all right with the Romans. But most people, most citizens saw them as, saw the Romans as the enemy, as Satan incarnate. In uh, Esau Macaulay's book, he also describes how Octavian transformed the Roman militia into a standing army in the cities, where they were responsible for maintaining public order, calming public disturbance and crime investigations. These soldiers slash police officers, they lived in and among the people, and they did not wear military uniforms. And they often functioned as the muscle behind the threats of corrupt tax collectors. They also had the power to stop and question residents for any reason. And these citizens in the Decapolis, they knew that any, at any moment they might come face to face with this militarized police force and not even know it. And the result for them could be traumatic. They could face the wrath of Rome if they said or did anything that was perceived as wrong, given that these militarized police were acting at the behest of those in authority. Some people certainly were gripped by that evil dark force internally as well as externally. And it seems that this poor fellow here in our story totally or today had become, from one point of view, totally obsessed by the powers that had taken over his country. And from another point of view, totally possessed by the troop of phantom invaders that had taken over his humanity. They had given him a superhuman strength, but had left him a human wreck, naked, isolated, and self-destructive. Now, there are certainly distinctive elements in Luke's story that suggest this man, who the story says is possessed by demons, aches for liberation from the Roman Empire. 
Luke, he describes how this man is shackled and kept under guard where the Greek verb philoso is used. And the same verb is also used to describe apostolic imprisonment by Roman authorities in Acts. And we can see this with Peter, who was guarded by four squads of four soldiers in a prison until an angel freed him. And then Paul was, in another example, Paul was in prison in Rome with a soldier guarding him. We also see how Luke describes the possessed man who repeatedly breaks his chains, his bonds, and then flees into the wilderness. And for Luke's early readers, this would have sounded familiar. Maybe it sounds familiar to you, too, because it seems Luke is giving an Exodus illusion, which is strengthened by the fact that the confrontation that happens toward the end of the story ultimately ends with a drowned army. So this possessed man, he runs up to Jesus and gives a challenge to Jesus that is at once indignant and afraid, as he basically says, what are you doing here, and do not torment me. He addresses Jesus with a Hellenistic title, Son of the Most High God, which is so used so often by Luke. In fact, he uses this title nine times in Luke and Acts. But the startling name that defines this episode is when Jesus asked the demon his name, and the man shouts the name Legion, which was the Latin term for a division of Roman soldiers representing a unit of 3,000 to 6,000 men. And this was a well-known term at that time, since there were four legions of soldiers based in Syria to control the eastern frontier of the empire. For a Jewish peasant in Palestine, a legion was the stern face of their conqueror. What happens next in this gospel story adds to the political allegory as the legion begged Jesus eagerly not to order them into the abyss. The legion instead begs to be sent into a herd of pigs, where Luke is making a very pointed connection since a herd is, the not, is not the right term for a group of pigs. Pigs don't travel in herds, and Luke knew this. A group of pigs is called a passel or a team or a sounder, whereas a herd was often used to refer to a band or group of military recruits. And this is interesting because the famous and feared 10th Legion was often symbolized by a pig mascot. And these veteran imperial soldiers, they saw lots of action. They saw action in Judea in the revolt of 6 BC. They saw action during the counterinsurgency of AD 68 to 70. And they were also responsible for the siege of Masada, after which they were based in Jerusalem. And then, according to the story, Jesus dismisses them, which connotes a military command. And then the pigs, they charge into the lake, suggesting troops rushing into battle. And Luke completes this part of the story with the legion, these enemy soldiers, because uh, they were being drowned in the lake, which would, of course, bring to the minds of Luke's readers the narrative of Israel's liberation from Egypt, which is in Exodus, where it is written in Exodus 15.4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. Perhaps Luke's use of this gospel story is inspired by the actions of seditious Galileans who drowned Herodian nobles in the Sea of Galilee during one of the many uprisings during this period, as recounted by the historian Josephus. Or it could be Josephus's bitter story during the Roman-Jewish War of how General Vespasian came with three legions and pitched his camp by the Sea of Galilee and proceeded to slaughter and drown Judean rebels who had fled to the Sea of Galilee to escape, resulting in the lake all bloody and full of dead bodies, for not one of them escaped. 
The story in Luke, it is an extraordinary tale, portraying on one how, how Roman imperialism was destroying the hearts and minds of a colonized people, with this demon-possessed man symbolizing Rome's military occupation of the land, while on the other hand, remembering the hopeful old story of God's liberating power. And then the story shifts as it turns our attention from the occupier to the occupied, from Rome and its legion to the people living in that area. And these people, their reaction to Jesus' liberative act of freeing this possessed man is at first glance surprisingly hostile, but maybe understandable given that the news of this exorcism is carried to the city and countryside by fleeing and probably furious pig herdsmen who have just lost their pigs and their means of income. And the residents of the city and region, these colonized people, are hardly pleased to see one of their own now clothed and in his right mind. And their anxiety is actually justified by the fact that during this historical period, Judean struggles for self-determination had spawned fierce Roman Roman counterinsurgency campaigns that had reduced more than one city in the region into rubble. So the awe of liberation and a dramatic healing is trumped by fear of imperial retaliation, which compels the garrisons to ask Jesus to leave. In political terms, this story attests to the power of the state to suppress opposition through pain and dread. In psychological terms, it reminds us that those who are codependent upon a dominant system, no matter how dysfunctional or dehumanizing, will usually resist change. Personal or political, liberation has a cost, which usually the majority is unwilling to risk. Now caught between the worlds, the man who was formerly possessed by a demon begs to go with Jesus. But Jesus refuses, challenging him instead to return to his home and testify to his transformation, to tell the good news of restoration, which makes sense. Who better can attest to the possibility of a liberation from oppression than someone who knows it from the inside out? Someone who also recognizes that Jesus is the true king. And this fully restored man, he goes home and became the first apostle to the Gentiles. Why Jesus went to that bit of a territory, we'll never fully know. But what he did was not only dramatic, it was deeply symbolic. Many in the area, Jews and non-Jews alike, must have longed to see the Romans push back into the Mediterranean Sea. If they read the book of Daniel, they would understand the sea as the place where the monsters come from. And the monsters were the big hitters on the world's political scene, which in Daniel's vision would have been the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks. Big and powerful empires. But Rome, Rome was the monster of monsters. Rome was unclean. Rome was the nation of pigs. And so the best place for Rome was back in the sea. We still see many examples of governments and empires that are like Rome and oppressed. From North Korea, with the tyrannical behavior of President Kim Jong-un, who with his country's ruthless police, kill for power, even family members. To Venezuela with their president, Nicolas Maduro, who has consistently violated and abused human rights and dignity of the country's citizens. We've heard of stories of Maduro's thugs who have killed and physically abused political opponents and repressed freedom of expression, all in a brutal effort to retain power. These are certainly two examples of governments that have oppressed their people, and certainly many people in these countries have been weighed down by a dark and evil force and are desperate for hope and liberation.
But truth be told, we have problems in America too, where there is oppression and injustice brought about by individuals and systems and institutions of power that show up and show up in our laws. From exploding mass incarceration to systemic racism to a cruel immigration system to unfair salaries and wages to voter suppression, just to name a few. These are examples of a dark and evil force that possesses and oppresses so many. And you can see why. It is cruel, it is unfair, it is humane, and it is intentional. So what was going to happen when Jesus, the man who is announcing God's kingdom, God's sovereign rule over all human rule, came face to face with someone obsessed and possessed by Rome and her unclean legions? Well, God's kingdom is to bring healing, restoring justice to Israel and the world. This story shows that underneath the pain and injustice of political enslavement, there is a spiritual battle. And Luke sees Jesus' kingdom movement as the means by which all earthly powers are brought to change, even though the messengers of the kingdom may suffer in the process. Esau Macaulay wrote that those who suffer from a dark and evil force find an ally in the God of Israel. Esau says, he or she finds someone who does more than sympathize with our wants and needs. This God steps into history and reorders the universe in favor of those who trust in him. He calls us to enter into this work of actualizing the transformation that he has already begun by the death and resurrection of his son. This includes the work of discipleship, evangelism, and the pursuit of personal holiness. It also includes bearing witness to a different and a better way of ordering our society in a world whose default instinct is oppression. To do less would be to deny the kingdom. The focus on Luke's story is on human distress and need, and on Jesus meeting that need and healing that stress. Wherever humans are in pain today, which means every community in the world, their transformative and revolutionary message of Jesus needs to be applied identifying with those in pain to bring God's healing where it is needed. Luke tells the story of Jesus healing a man possessed with an unclean spirit, a spirit called legion, because it is a story of hope and liberation where we learn that Jesus is the true king. Friends, we're going to shift right now and go into a time of communion. And here's the good news. Jesus is our king. A God who turns his compassionate eye towards us because he loves us. So let us come to this table and let us eat and drink and remember the goodness and power of God. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Friends, the table is open and everyone is invited.